If you haven't downloaded the world's first provincial election betting app, you need to ask yourself, why haven't I downloaded the world's first provincial election betting app? The new Manitoba provincial election armchair prognosticator betting app from the Winnipeg Free Press is a total game changer. With our new Space AG app, you can bet on which candidates will win, by how many votes, and whether the CBC will make the wrong election prediction before all the votes are counted. But what if you want to make a bet while people are still voting? You can do that. Seriously. When the ballot boxes are finally cracked open, you can create a whole new parlay. How many spoiled ballots? How long did people have to wait in line to vote? Did the Keystone Party somehow manage to get a single vote in Point Douglas? It's all right here, right in the palm of your hand. The Free Press Manitoba Provincial Election Armchair Prognosticator app is waiting for you. It's time to get in the game. Terms and conditions apply. Election wagers only valid for users in Manitoba. Please prognosticate responsibly. Wagering on sports or elections is stupid. Know your limits. If you or a loved one have an obsession with politics or gambling, perhaps it's time to get a new hobby. Please note, app is purely fictional. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome everybody to a special episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast. This week, we decided to uh, go directly at the question that's on everybody's mind related to the provincial election. So you're going to interrupt me right away, so just go Well, I was it. about to say that, you know, we've been talking about it. It's like we've been dancing around the fire yeah. for weeks, and now we're just going to jump Afraid right, in the, to right stick in the our fire. Foot into the fire. Right, we're jumping right yeah. in. Yeah, okay. So uh, this is the 2023 provincial election handicap special uh, where uh, we're, we're bringing in uh, pundits to support your uh, podcast hosts to uh, so that we can actually try to, at least at this point, try to offer our best forecasts, our best guesses as to what's going to happen in the 2023 election, which must take place no later than... <laughs> October 3rd. So uh, joining us uh, to help out, uh, Chris Adams is an adjunct professor, political studies department at the University of Manitoba. Chris. Yep. How's it going? Nice to be here, Dan. Good, good. And again, nice to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you not in a committee meeting at the university. So. That is correct. <laughs> Curtis Brown is a principal at uh, Probe Research, uh, who is the Probe Research is the polling partner of the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, as an aside, if you if you have to do polling in 2023, try probe research. Uh, polling to the nobody's a better partner. Polling to the media record. Curtis, welcome to the. Thanks, thanks yeah. for having me. Buddy. And if you like the little blurb, tell uh, Scott he can buy an ad on the podcast. Like wow. we're doing that anytime. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. We'll get right on that. So okay, so a uh, quick word about we had to come up with a methodology such as it is because we have 57 writings. And if we spent two minutes talking about every riding, uh, we would have it an all-time long. No one would listen no one would listen about minute 30, and it would just go on forever. Okay. So what we decided to do instead was compile uh, our illustrious panelists and your ideas of riding by riding where things would go. And so we made this massive spreadsheet. And uh, I, of course, came in at the end having not done my homework very well. And, uh, and your so mother called to say that she's heard this story before. So. <laughs> my dog ate my homework. Yeah, so okay. Actually, I was more like, do I want to spend part of my life doing this? But anyway, yeah. and so here we are. We've compiled everything according to our pundits who have a, a great deal of insider knowledge of each riding. And then uh, what we did on top of that was look at the safe seats. Uh, and then uh, what are the seats kind of up? Up, up in grab. the air, up for grabs. And, and then I think that generally what we're going to spend is the most amount of time talking about those toss-up seats. But it's worth covering, you know, that when we initially did the compiling of our panelists, um, it was interesting that it kind of came down to about 20 safe seats per on both the NDP yeah. and the Conservatives. And that's interesting. I mean, that's yeah. interesting because it shows you that there's there's kind of a block vote on each side and then there's yeah. a lot of mushy middle. 
Well, yeah, like there, it, I guess you could say there's kind of a mob mentality uh, uh, about this. Uh, that uh, and so I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just give you very quickly and just for uh, listeners, uh, this uh, compilation will be available in uh, in addition to my column. I'm going to write a column about this. Uh, it will it will appear today, the day that the uh, podcast is uh, is also dropped. So uh, what we came down to was 21 safe NDP seats, 20 safe uh, uh, progressive conservative seats, and three safe liberal seats. If you think of Manitoba, is there's when you look at the ridings, like at the far north or the north above the interlake, that's really the safe area for the NDP. And historically speaking, the north of Winnipeg, so I always think of the two norths, right? And then for the progressive conservatives, generally speaking, the south part of Manitoba and the south part of the city historically was was progressive conservative. So when I looked at your 57 riding list, I look at where do they fit into the two norths, right. urban north and uh, and rural north and, and rural south and, and urban south. So that, that sort of, when we talk about the safe seats in Manitoba, mm-hmm. in many ways, they kind of lock into those two norths and, and the two souths that belong to each of the parties. Of the 21 safe seats, uh, for the NDP that, and this is more or less the consensus of the, uh, the pundit panel, the handicap panel, uh, Assiniboia, Brandon East, Burroughs, Concordia, Elmwood, Flinflon, Fort Gary, Fort Rouge, Kiwatanook, the Maples, McPhillips, Notre Dame, Point Douglas, St. James, St. John's, St. Vitel, The Paw, Kimasek, Thompson, Transcona, Union Station, Wolseley. Pretty good on pronunciation. Not no, bad. Uh, Kiwetanuk yeah. and uh, Kamisak. Okay. Nigan yes. is going to read the Tories so I don't make <laughs> any more pronunciation problems. <laughs> but surprisingly, the Tory seats are all safe seats, are all easy to pronounce. I I know this. I I'm not going to comment any further on that. Um, okay, the 20 safe seats for the Conservatives are Agassiz, Borderland, Fort White, Lavarandre, uh, Lac de Bonnie, Lakeside, Midland, Morden Winkler, Portage La Prairie, Red River North, Riding Mountain, Roblin, Springfield, Richoche, Richo. You're doing that on purpose. <laughs> uh, Spruce Woods. Yeah. Steinbach, Swan River, Turtle Mountain, and Waverly. Uh, and, and very quickly, we're going to, for the sake of today, we're going to give the Liberals their three existing seats in River Heights, St. Boniface, and Tyndall Park. Correct. Very, very generous of you, Dan. Well, you know, well, we all sort of did. Like, there was there was a little wavering, but not much. I'll refer back to my colleague Chris over there. Because uh, when you're talking a little bit about the North, there are two Norths, and uh, there are... there. North of Winnipeg isn't always uh, NDP. I mean, they're that first north of what you're talking about, I think we're talking about areas I grew up, frankly. I mean, the Interlake, Selkirk. I think some of those are perhaps up for grabs this time yeah. around, but certainly in the past have not been. I mean, we're even talking about pretty staunch former Reform Party areas uh, in yeah. the Interlake and Selkirk, particularly. So there used to be Tom Peterson, you know, who taught up until uh, the, the mid-80s at the University of Manitoba, but he... He draws a diagonal line across the, the Manitoba map. And as the PCs win that diagonal line, which follows the Canadian Shield diagonal line, that goes north and the PCs grab more of the interlake and places like that. And as the NDP win that diagonal line of the Canadian Shield line, that goes south. And so the NDP's north starts to expand into places like Gimli and things like that. So mm-hmm. you're right. It's, I'm not talking about the NDP area just being north of Winnipeg. It's that Canadian Shield line. And that line is really divides between PC and NDP. Curtis, why don't you uh, take us through and mention the list of swing seats, and then we'll we'll sort of go into them one by one and talk about why we think these ones are toss-ups. Yeah, well, there's a number of them. Most of them are in South Winnipeg. A few of them are outside the perimeter. So, uh, Assiniboia, uh, dot, you know, uh, in in West Winnipeg, Dauphin. Uh, in western Manitoba, Dawson Trail, just kind of east of the city, Fort Richmond, Interlake Gimli, uh, Kildonan River East, Kirkfield Park, Lajemodier, uh, Radisson, Riel, Rossmere, Seine River, Selkirk, Southdale. I think in terms of making any of the list of seats that we're going to be looking at, uh, these are the ones that we're really going to be watching over the next few months. So the important thing to remember, like, and this uh, goes back to past elections, is if 
the NDP are to achieve uh, like a solid majority, landslide type majority, they would literally have to take all of these 14 seats. And the list that we gave you of the NDP safe seats includes two steals already that we think are are pretty much uh, uh, done deals. So, like, I think the when people who are predicting an easy route uh, for the NDP to a majority, it, this is where you really start, when you separate them out, you, Curtis, you start to see, like, it's a really steep hill. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I even I would even start with some of the NDP safe seats. I don't know if I would define them as being as safe as maybe there's a bit, you know, as, as maybe we agree on here, like Brandon East, um, uh, McPhillips. I mean, those are some ones that maybe will be a little bit more difficult. Uh, you know, Brandon East would be a pickup. But yeah, with some of these, yeah, they definitely, the NDP definitely has to run the table almost to be able to get to that, you know, low to mid 30s in terms of the number of seats otherwise we're talking about yeah either you know a minority or bare majority kind of a situation yeah, yeah. and then, i mean there's a lot of on a riding by riding basis there's a lot of things uh, you know that you just you can't quite account for um the parties you know chris the parties don't run the same campaign in every riding in terms of their resources and their the intensity that don't they they tend to move things around depending on where they think they might have openings for gains, and they may abandon other seats all completely, which changes the you know the landscape. Yeah, I mean, the, the, where where you see you have the safe ridings, you aren't going to pour a whole lot of critical resources into that, and the same thing for for the ridings that you know are not going to support you. You don't put, and uh, you know with uh, you know Curtis will know a lot about this. Like the polling data also show you where where you put your resources. So, you know, there's some, some writings in which, well, let, let me back up. What the voter really votes on three choices. One is the, the leader. The leader is very prominent in terms of your voter choice. Secondly is the party and what the party stands for. And thirdly is the local candidate. So those three things come together as part of the collection of, of things that determine a voter's choice. So, okay, so let's, uh, let's talk about the three toss-up seats that are outside Winnipeg. And I think that, um, uh, you know, you, ta- you talked earlier, or maybe you could do it again just for posterity now, the diagonal line uh, when uh, the NDP and the Tories, uh, when their fortunes swing, how the diagonal line changes the electoral map in Manitoba. So, so one of the things is Interlake Gimli, and the, the Interlake Gimli, I see that as being a, a bellwether for the province, and I see that being an NDP gain. Uh, some of the other ones I'm just quickly looking at my list here is the Dauphin is Dauphin and Dauphin um, uh, I, I see see uh, uh, we had a couple of us had said leaning towards the NDP but anyway I, I do see that line as being when we look along that line that that's where the NDP will be making gains but I, I want to hear about Brandon if possible Brandon okay well where well, I that's your hometown where I used to live and work uh, for the Brandon Sun back in the day uh, yeah Brandon East um, I think that is traditionally an NDP seat and uh, one that the NDP probably have a pretty good chance of winning back I don't think it's a slam dunk though I think that uh, yeah Brandon's change demographically too and uh, it's a they you know they voted for conservatives in that seat for the last two terms you know and if we want to talk about before Brandon West used to be a swing seat if you want to go way back and uh, I don't say I don't think it is I don't see how it is I mean it's pretty seems to be pretty staunchly solidly conservative and uh, yeah so I mean I, again this sort of speaks to what I was saying before that the NDP I think um, you know, we'll have some challenges picking up many seats in, in rural Manitoba, like rural, not northern or not kind of in that, uh, you know, on the edge of that diagonal line um, uh, part of Manitoba. So, yeah, I think uh, the key in Brandon East is, as it always is, good, strong E-Day yeah. uh, for them. And uh, they have to uh, tape Drew Caldwell's thumbs to his hands so he can't tweet. So if they can do that, then I give them a solid chance of taking back Brandon East. <laughs> Uh, the other area that I think, and I know we'll talk about Winnipeg, but I, but I think the, the, uh, the south suburbs of Winnipeg, and that's going to be critical, but I'll, I'll wait till we get to that part of the discussion. You know, but you, uh, it's interesting because, you know, looking at the, the way that we looked at, um, Doff, really those three, I think, are Dauphin, Interlake Gimli, and then Selkirk. Uh, yeah. we all kind of were split on those three ridings. And generally, I think, you know, Dauphin, I think, might be easier to call than Interlake Gimli and Selkirk because, but Selkirk has been for such a long period of time, such a strong conservative riding and quite soundly in the 2019 election, John Lajemodier, but of course now there's no more Lajemodier and 
there may be winds of change. I mean, that was a long time NDP riding, but has not been NDP for a very, very long time as well. Yeah, I would I would classify some of these seats a little bit uh, differently too. Like I think Dauphin and Interlake Gimli. Um, and if you look at our numbers, um, I mean, we talk a lot about the NDP being up a lot in the city, but the reverse is true as well. The Conservatives have a massive lead in rural Manitoba, and that really hasn't changed despite their overall popularity decreasing. And Dauphin and Interlake Gimli, if you look at the boundaries, I mean, they are, you know, of the kind of seats outside the perimeter, they're the most rural. And I do think that, yeah, even though Dauphin, yeah, you might have a bit, you know, there's been some things there that I think might, you know, lead it to be more of an well, the jail, seat. particularly yeah, the, the jail, jail and, and the, yeah, mm-hmm. the incumbent MLA is running again, that sort of stuff. That's, you know, but, but still it's a pretty, it's a pretty rural seat. And that's why I would consider it to be more of a toss up. Interlake Gimli, same thing, different boundaries compared mm-hmm. to when Peter Bjornsson and Gary Duer was winning that seat when it was closer to the city. Now it's way more rural. Um, whereas like Selkirk is Selkirk, St. Andrews, and even like Dawson Trail to some extent, even though it's I think that probably, yeah, yeah, essentially yeah. their capital region, their bedroom communities. Um, and they are, yeah, in, in many ways, you know, kind of just, you know, like a lot of the other suburban seats we talk about. Well, and, that's so I only mentioned three rural seats, but Dawson Trail, I don't really consider to be a rural seat. I mean, that's another one that, that really captures so much bedroom community to Winnipeg. I think those people, like when they're thinking and talking about politics with their friends and family, they're talking about it from a from a, a greater Winnipeg area kind of perspective. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. You know, a seat like that where where yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, I guess with Dawson Trail in particular, there is like Saint Anne and kind of the more rural area a little bit further out. But but yeah, definitely those communities that are just right up against the perimeter. Um, it's it's not that different than say some of the ones you know right at the you know edge of Winnipeg. So let's talk about the city then, because that is where there are more seats in the city. The NDP enjoy the greatest uh, support and the greatest gap in support to the progressive conservatives. But I, I mean, it really, I wouldn't say like to get to get into that low to mid 30s, they've pretty much got to run the table in Winnipeg. And it may turn out like it may get dangerously close uh, to running the table if some of those seats that Gary Dewar was able to win. But let's talk Assiniboia, which again is not a traditional, um, it's not really a traditional NDP strong suit. Why, why could they be strong in Assiniboia? The NDP's had a Cinnaboy in the past, right? I mean, they, Jim they Rondo. yeah, they won it by four votes, I think, in 1999. It is kind of a older suburban area compared to some of the new parts of the city. Um, but it's something where, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think either way, it's going to be contested pretty closely. It's been conservative for the last little while, but I mean, yeah, just the, you know, you look at the demographics of that area, uh, and it is, I mean, the NDP actually did perform relatively well there in the last election. I think they had the, they, they cut the, the plurality of less than a thousand votes. So it is what, it is one that the NDP would be in a good position to pick up. And it is a bellwether riding, you know, as, as Assiniboia goes, so goes the province, one could say. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before, but we're going to, yeah, we're definitely going to say that more. Trademark. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, I mean, Assiniboia is, Definitely uh, close, but there's an argument to be made with Assiniboia as being sort of turned back to an NDP. Uh, and, you know, when we talked about Selkirk, I think that might be something worth talking about. But, but you know, I think if you were to look at one riding that would be a Winnipeg riding and is the turning point riding and the one to watch on the night, it would really have to be Southdale. Like, I think Southdale is such an important riding because it's Audrey Gordon's yeah. uh, health minister. I mean, we know that the major, we haven't really got to this part around what are the major issues that are going to be this election fought on, but it's, I mean, everyone knows it's going to be healthcare. It's going to be the number one issue. And so in this election, I think watching Southdale and Audrey Gordon, who won pretty handily in 2019, winning by like 20, 20%, you know, um, would that be, would you agree that would be the one riding? Or I see some shaking of heads or. I think it's, it's one of, one of the, the writings to really watch. I think yeah. that I, I don't see how the NDP, if they want to form government, cannot win Southdale. But I would put in the in Winnipeg, I've got three or four other seats that I think are must wins if they want to form government. Yeah, I think it's I think it's among that and maybe McPhillips, I mean, are probably like the lowest hanging fruit in terms, you know, if the NDP don't do well in those seats uh, or it's very close even. 
they're probably not going to have a good shot of winning government, right? Um, just based on where their numbers are, I would think that yeah. those would be seats that they could pick up. I mean, for me in the city, it's probably uh, it's probably a seat like Waverly or Fort mm-hmm. Richmond or maybe even like Radisson in Northeast Winnipeg. Those are the ones that I would say are probably my bellwethers and the ones that I'm Ross Muir. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the NDP, again, you know, they've had moments of great glory, uh, Chris, haven't they, in that Northeast? Remember, I mean, Gary Durer during his heyday was sort of the... Uh, the king of Northeast Winnipeg, you know, and in all of his, he used to talk about how much time he spent going to watch his kids play volleyball and soccer. But it was also like, you know, I think it was deliberate, you know, like he wanted to show his face in that part of the city to let people know, you know, they don't have to vote uh, progressive conservative. Yeah, you know, you look at North American trends and the right of center uh, voters are in the, the suburbs, right? And And so in Winnipeg, if you look federally and provincially, as you get to the outer ring, you know, closer to the perimeter, you start seeing more progressive conservative support. And the closer to the core area, the stronger is the NDP support. So I used to think of the NDP support in the city as being north versus south. Gary Doerr changed that, but also just the politics of North America changed. Mm-hmm. And so we look more at the donut around the city. That's where people have larger houses, complain about taxes, and they might drive pickup trucks and things like that. And whereas the core area tends to be more the working class. So that's one thing to think about is, so those areas like McPhillips, Assiniboia, really means that the NDP is able to cut into that donut and uh, that donut ring. And uh, if they don't, like I said before, McPhillips and Assiniboia, if they don't take those, then it's it's a lost cause for, and, and the PCs will have held on to power. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, I mean, sort of in that same vein, is that when you look at also, you you know, we talk about like Gary Dewar and the NDP of that era going into suburban Winnipeg. The other thing that happened in 2016 when the Conservatives and Brian Pallister won big was they won a lot of seats in northeast Winnipeg and sort of a traditional working class part of the city. They won Radisson, they won Transcona, they narrowly give Transcona back in the last election. Um, but that's why, yeah, like Radisson, Rossmere, some of those seats, which are, you know, typically, you know, his, you know, a little more, a little more blue collar, a little more working class. Um, you know, that I think also when you talk a look at the trends, you know, North America wide or worldwide, I mean, that there's been conservative parties tend to appeal much more um, to those kinds of voters. And so that's why I think, you know, yeah, like, I mean, 20 years, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been talking about these areas as being potentially swing or hotly contested. Whereas, yeah, now we see like Radisson or Rossmere. I mean, that's a big part of where that battle, I think, is going to be within the city. Well, we also talked just briefly before we started about um, how, you know, the, the Tories used to rule southwest Winnipeg uh, to central south, south central Winnipeg. But even now, like if you, uh, if you look at the census information that's coming, uh, and that's broken down by federal riding, but you know, Winnipeg South, which cover is such an enormous riding now that covers that almost that, that quarter of the city in the Southwest is now the most diverse riding yeah. in Manitoba. So there are more people of different, uh, ethnocultural backgrounds in Winnipeg South than any other riding. And while you, you can't, always these days associate diversity with either right-wing or left-wing politics. What it does mean is, you know, the liberals aren't as strong in St. Boniface as they used to be. It's not the St. Boniface of Ron Duhamel. You know, uh, uh, you know the, this is not the, the southwest Winnipeg of Gary Fillman. And, you know, the, the number of new Canadians in, in Winnipeg is phenomenal. And, and, uh, and if you think of the Filipino Canadian community in Winnipeg, that's something that wasn't really there 20 years ago. And so, and, and in some ways, the NDP has been very effective in courting the, the Filipino, like you think of the Marcelinos and, and their impact. But it'll be interesting in this election to see that, you know, new Canadians, particularly first and second generation, uh, Filipino Canadians, what that impact will be on, on outcomes. So uh, this isn't the only difficult riding that I'll bring up, but I know this is the one that, that from a brief chat before we started recording, that's among the most contentious. So we should have, like, we should have, like, uh, dramatic, <laughs> scary monster music coming in now for the uh, the contentious portion of the podcast. Ready? Okay, thanks, Adam. Uh, Kirkfield Park. Okay, so that it is in the toss-up section, but not everybody thinks it's a toss-up. The guy who didn't do his homework doesn't think it's a toss-up. I <laughs> no, I didn't I, because uh, you know I 
that's the one writing I think I know very intimately and uh, having seen and heard and had my daughter knock on the, the you know, working in that campaign. Uh, it, it, it is such a strong conservative base riding that while close and perhaps should have turned, it seems like there is a hardcore set conservative vote within that riding. And then on top of that, and I think we're one thing where we haven't done is when we talk about individual candidates, I think sometimes there are candidates that we perhaps may, um, I wonder sometimes when we talk about, for instance, we haven't talked a lot about, uh, are there areas within the province that are really willing and open-minded enough to vote for a First Nations leader of a party? And this is worth discussing, uh, but it's also mm-hmm. worth thinking about because, you know, in Kirkfield Park, we have an openly trans person who's running for the NDP and that those, there are elements of Winnipeg that sometimes think about those issues when it comes to candidates. And, and Kirkfield Park is going to be something very interesting because I, I want to watch that on election night because I want to believe that there's a Manitoba that's ready for, to think about people from all different walks of life that can walk into politics and, and serve. But I also know that that having witnessed what happens within the last campaign, although it was a by-election, I mean, by-elections are such a weird way to to make a litmus test of anything, you know, but I would be very interested to see uh, what is the kind of Manitoba that we're looking for in the future that truly is representative and inclusive. And I think Kirkfield Park will tell that story. Yeah, I think, um, I I mean, uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you and I, Chris, kind of see the NDP fixing the horrendous by-election performance, you know, like, and, and uh, regrouping. I mean, I, I, I mean, as much as anything matters, you know, nobody really cares what I think is going to happen. Oh, I care. Yeah. But, but no, but I think the NDP will win. I think the only reason that they didn't win, uh, I would say 25% of it was the fact that the PCs stumbled into a guy with instant name recognition who had still had his mayoral, billboards up around the city when the by-election was called, uh, Kevin Klein. And uh, the second thing was that they ran a horrible campaign. They ran, they, you know, you've got, and, and I'll, I'll connect this to current events. So the Grace Hospital is smack dab in the middle of the riding. The Grace Hospital is a flashpoint for uh, the debate on health care. And not just now, uh, I mean, the events of this week have made it more so, with the like absolutely astonishing uh, performance by the premier and the health minister to deny the existence of a letter uh, alerting them to problems at Grace Hospital, then acknowledging that the letter exists, and then suddenly ordering two hundred more, it, you know, almost trying to bribe the the surgeons at Grace, you know, like I, I think this is where uh, uh, the Tories have a problem uh, that will not go away. Uh, in three, four, five months' time, every candidate of every party that wants to steal that riding from the Tories is going to be standing out in front of the Grace Hospital. And you know what? It's not a defensible position for the government right now. That, that's got to have an impact. Well, I, I would say one thing is, is if you looked at that last by-election, we don't want to hang on too much uh, as an evidence of what's going to happen in the future, but as the Liberals... Uh, the Liberal impact, the Liberals yeah. and their impact on, on the outcome of that 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 by-election was, I, I think, significant. So, w- and, and I think a number of close ridings is the question will be, what, what will the, what will the Liberals be doing and will they be pulling votes away? My, my thinking is that, uh, many voters will be voting strategically and, and they'll say, do they want to, they, do they want to kick the PCs out or don't they? And then they'll make a choice in most cases for the NDP. So, but I do think that, Places like Kirk, Kirkfield Park, the Liberals will be uh, the spoilers or not the spoilers. Yeah, I think they're going to be a big factor. I, I, I mean, it's interesting. They performed very well. They had a, you know, the Liberal candidate who's also running again in this election is a was is a nurse at the Grace, yeah. and so that made a big, you know, that made a big impact. I think in terms of talking about that. But I, you know, I mean, what we've seen historically and and even you know in, in you know by election, the Liberals always perform much better in by elections than they do in general elections. And and I, you know, so I do think that that Liberal support, especially when you look at what our numbers are doing overall. That's probably going to go down a bit. And the question is going to be, where does that vote go? I mean, does that go net to the NDP? Cause it's kind of like, you know, about, about change. Uh, it could. I mean, I do think it's close, but I also do think that, yeah, the, there is a strong, you know, to Negan's point. 
there is a strong base of conservative vote in that riding, and Kevin Klein does have a fair bit of name recognition and uh, a following. And so I think that, you know, compared to if it was just any sort of generic conservative candidate, uh, they might be a little more trouble. But I think that's definitely something that would, uh, you know, have me being a little bit more hopeful about uh, uh, their chances in, in that riding. So the, the last little bit of, uh, of uh, theory that I'll throw out again about what might happen in Kirkfield Park. Uh, so we talked about how, like, the Liberals did really, really well and, and got uh, equaled or did slightly better than what they got in the general election, which almost never happens. So, uh, so that was 1,700 votes. Uh, I believe that that actually probably, because of it connects to the 2019 result, I think that is the ceiling for the Liberals right now. So uh, then you have Kevin Klein with 2357 and uh, Logan Oxenham with uh, 2196. So uh, a by-election, I think, when the NDP decided or ended up running a bad campaign, mismanaged on ground level, E-Day kind of stuff, what they did is they fl- this result flatters the Tories. Because to, to win this in a general election, he's going to get have to get at least twice as many votes or more to be competitive. Now, if the Liberal vote is staying the same, theoretically, then the real, gro- the real growth question is the NDP vote. My guess is that a lot of Tories stay home in Kirkfield Park and don't vote. They're, they're not going to vote for the NDP. They're not going to vote for the Liberals. They're just not going to vote. And that's actually, even with the poll results, when you go back to 2016 and look at, you know, Brian Pallister winning, winning this thundering majority, it was because, like, the NDP vote didn't switch. It just collapsed, right? Like, the people who had been voting NDP, yeah, some of them did vote Tory, some of them did vote Liberal. I think people were kind of fed up with a lot of stuff in that, at that particular election. And they, they just, just didn't don't come out vote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think, so I, you know, I think uh, hard lessons learned in the by-election NDP's got to be lean and hungry in Kirkfield Park, and I just don't. I don't see Kevin Klein uh, as dynamic a character as he is. I just. I don't see where he doubles or more his his vote total. Well, here's a little factoid: is is back in 1970 <laughs> when we were wee barons, Ed Schreier was saying that that for the NDP to do well, they need the Liberals to be strong, and that oh. shows you how things have changed because the yeah. Liberals would draw votes away from the Progressive Conservatives. So. <laughs> Now we go, you know, decades later now, and it's a different thing for the yeah. for the do you think, NDP to do well. They they want the liberals to be uh, weak. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the that this progressive vote, if we, you know, I always have trouble using this term progressive uh, when it comes to describing, you know, people who are in that middle, kind of figuring out, what, you know, are am I interested more in a party that's uh, interested in tax cuts or expenditures for social social issues or or along the ways, uh, you know, Riel is such an interesting riding because uh, we just recently had Rochelle Squires on, and it is a fairly diverse riding. I also lived in this neighborhood, so I know the kind of social justice lean that this neighborhood has. She's a very, very strong constituency MLA. Like she's a cabinet minister, but she's also she works that riding super hard as the MLA too, which is and that that is a make or break. You know, yeah. sort of quality. Sort of quality. Oh, no, yeah. absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, too, when you look to that area that the Conservatives won mm-hmm. back in 2016, I think that those who did come out were sick and tired of what the NDP had to offer, particularly the infighting that were taking place. But there are also, there is a, uh, a socially conscious branch within the Conservative vote mm-hmm. that leans very much towards thinking about uh, funding hospitals, violence against women. So, and, you know, I think Rochelle Squires in many ways represents that area, that element of the Conservative Party. And so it's interesting that if there were to be a turn towards looking towards the Liberals, but maybe also the NDP, uh, it would be in Riel. And I noticed that all of you picked Riel as leaning NDP. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the reason I would sort of see it as being leaning NDP is just because of, yeah, again, the demographics of it, kind of the overall trend in the city. I, I think your point about, uh, Negan, about, um, about that, you know, uh, lean in terms of like where people are at. I mean, I think the government has had the progressive conservatives have made a, uh, you know, very conscious 
turn towards that. I mean, it kind of goes against some of the other things, the other decisions that they made really are trying to sort of fit that vein of, you know, being like, we're spending more on healthcare, we're spending more on schools, we're doing these sort of thing. And, and so, and I think that, you know, very much with the aim of trying to shore up some of those seats. I mean, you know, it's certainly possible, but I do think that, yeah, Riel compared to maybe some other ones in Southeast Winnipeg, uh, like say St. River or Lajamodier, just might be a little bit more difficult for the uh, conservatives to hang on to just because there is just t- typically a higher base of NDP support we've seen over there for a long time. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, what do you think about that? And I would like to hear your thoughts on, I mean, this came up a lot in last week's podcast when we were talking about Rochelle Squires and, and uh, while she didn't say as much, she said a lot in what she didn't say about the first years of this government and versus the last few years of the government and how the radical shift. And I mean, she used terms like an openness when working with the premier, a premier that listens more now versus before. I mean, she was absolutely telling us without telling us that there is a tone shift in the inner workings of the party, but also the external workings of the party. I mean, we just saw a massive expenditure into healthcare after years of cuts we see funding with, with uh, poverty-based organizations, which that would never have been heard of before under Brian Pallister. I mean, they cut the Neighborhoods Alive program, et cetera, et cetera. I can count all these different ways. Do you see the, the electorate in Manitoba as looking towards these two sides of the Conservative Party that have done a real radical shift over the past two, three years as being almost like a, uh, a way to look at the party and go, I'm not sure where you're standing on some of these issues? Well, well, I think Rochelle Squires, in in some ways, she she is a, well, she's a high profile cabinet minister. People saw Squires as a possible uh, leadership candidate, and she decided not to run for leadership. She was she was the candidate the NDP were the most afraid of. Uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And 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 then you you think about where she's been on a number of positions. You use the term progressive. I would see her like a Roblin, uh, a Duff Roblin type type uh, conservative. But I, I would say that that. Um, that the conservative party, the progressive conservative party of Manitoba has always had two elements in it. And we saw that in the Shelley Glover versus Heather Stephenson, uh, uh, fractions within the party. And, and we saw that, uh, in the 1980s of Gary Fellman against Ransom. We saw Sterling Lyon versus Spivak, if you want to go back to the 70s. And now we're seeing it in many ways, uh, in, in, in this election of uh, Heather Stephenson moving the party away from its rural, cut taxes, low spending, that kind of hard-bitten side of the party. And the other side is the more progressive or or red Tory side of the party, urban side of the party. So I think Rochelle Squires is very firmly on that side of the party. But we are seeing like all the money that's being spent right now by the progressive conservatives. It's just a sign of that faction of the party has taken over. And we'll see what's the fragment party that's just created, the Keystone Party, is it? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 don't talk about the Keystone Party. Okay, yet, okay. That's, that's in our next segment. Oh, okay, uh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, uh, no, but I, I was going to say, like, the, um, and we, we ran an editorial this week pointing this out again, that, you know. Did you write it? Uh, no. Okay. I didn't. That's, that's why I'm mentioning it <laughs> with a clear conscience. Um, but the, uh, it was really the political value of tax cuts. So I would agree, and I agreed when Rochelle said it when she was on the podcast, that there's a change in tone. Yeah, there's absolutely a change in tone uh, with the government. Um, you know, Heather Stephenson meets with people, goes out to events, shows her face. You know, Brian Pallister, Brian Pallister went to movies by himself. Like, and that, that wasn't just, you know, kind of a cute little factoid. That was the living embodiment of what he used to put on a baseball cap. And sit in the back row of movie theaters. That was his idea of a good night out. He just like he. Well, delegated. they said Howard Pauly shot for gloves. That was his <laughs> exciting. Richard <laughs> Eaton's. Anyway, I'm interrupting. That's sorry, okay. Dan. But you know, like it's so change in tone. I absolutely buy that. But I think that there's still a battle for the soul of the, of the Progressive Conservative Party going on. This year, 1.3 billion dollars in tax expenditures. Tax cuts on tax cuts on tax cuts. Checks being mailed out all the time. They're spending a million dollars just to send out property tax rebate checks. And the problem is, A, for anybody who's a real fiscal conservative and understands these things, it's lunacy. It's madness. We're supposed to be going into a period two or three years of recession or close to recession, but slow economic growth. And they are giving away... And it's going to get bigger, exponentially bigger every year. 
I actually think that when the uh, the checks start flowing, uh, and the, this this misguided idea that conservatives want tax cuts—that's really what conservatives want. No, you know, conservatives want to know that they don't have to wait two years to get a knee replacement, and and it's so every time they get one of those property tax rebate checks, all those people who are on the waiting, the tens of thousands of people on waiting lists, are going to look at it and they're connecting the dots. I believe that they are connecting the dots. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think there are, you know, there definitely are some people, you know, out there who, you know, want that sort of thing, want government to give them their money back, et cetera. But, but yeah, I, I think this does really speak to the tension that the conserv, you know, the conservatives have to deal with, right? And what they have to do to be able to win seats in suburban Winnipeg is, is to be able to, you know, be relatively moderate. That's always where they've been relatively successful. Um, and trying to, you know, sort of bring it back, I think, to, you know, to try to deal with some of those things. Um, that's, you know, that's the challenge for the conservatives. And we are seeing this tension between, yeah, giving money away, the tax cuts, all this sort of stuff, but also trying to do the investment. And it is a little bit, um, you know, kind of out of step or, you know, sort of figuring out, like, where does, you know, if you're the Progressive Conservative Party in 2023, where do you stand after kind of going through all these different things in the last seven years? The NDP have, you know, to be fair, have a similar tension, right, between mm-hmm. kind of how trying to be a little bit more, you know, pragmatic and, yeah. um, you know, focused on trying to, you know, do, do the thing, you know, the pocketbook things, and the social service things that are going to win over those suburban voters. And then also, you know, uh, I mean, this is kind of, I think, what happened at the end of the Dewar-Selinger era where, you know, God became a little bit more about raising taxes and uh, other sorts of issues that, you know, they kind of got away got away on, on them. So, yeah, both parties have to, I think, navigate that and sort of really aim at that median voter and some of those suburban seats and what they want. And it's somewhere kind of middle of the road. Arguably, though, I mean, that NDP is not the dominant NDP. I mean, uh, right now the, the the dominant NDP is very much on the social justice side yeah. of the yeah. party, and that NDP, I almost can't see who is leading that at any way. I mean, maybe the, the, also this NDP hasn't been in government. I mean, the the old NDP is gone uh, with the past few years. I mean, other than you know Jim Malloway and you know like there's there they the, the old party wing has shifted. Uh, to many ways, this new party wing, which is is untested, but also at the same time, I don't think is the kind of fiscal NDP that might be present. Uh, at the same time, we don't know, right? Because they haven't served time in the office. I want to ask one more question um, to our panel, because I think this is something that, you know, we're doing this a little bit early uh, in terms of how many months out. Well, you have uh, to have of, us back. No, but the advantage <laughs> is that if we're wrong, nobody will remember what we said. <laughs> exactly. I think so, they'll all throw this in our face. Yeah, this maybe, episode yeah. will mysteriously disappear from Spotify. <laughs> so. But, but you know, like, the the fact is that dozens of candidates have yet to be, ch- to be chosen. I mean, uh, the Conservatives have 31 of 57 ridings. Uh, the NDP has 37 of 57 ridings selected for candidates. And I think to Fort White, the Fort White by-election, and arguably the reason why the Liberals were so competitive in that riding, I we could say the issues, but I think part of that is because Willard Reeves, you know, longtime Blue Bomber, uh, ran in that as a candidate in that riding, and I think had name value. And and you know, while you know Abi Khan is sort of known, I don't think in any way the kind of way in which Willard Reeves is known as an icon within the city, and and so. Would you say that the last push towards candidates or, or selecting candidates according will be a factor? Yeah, I think it will to some extent. I mean, I, I think, you know, Chris talked earlier about the three factors that people make their choices on, right? His party, his leader, and local candidate. And usually local candidate, I mean, I think it is usually further down in terms mm-hmm. of what people make that decision on. It can make a difference, especially in a by-election uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, but I think, you know, the, if you look at where the parties have nominated the candidates so far, I mean, they've really, you know, obviously they're going to have their incumbents, but they've also really been targeting a lot of their, um, uh, these swing seats, right, so far in terms like the NDP. The NDP already has like, you know, bus ads out in, in like Kil- uh, North Kildonan uh, for the NDP candidate there. Um in different parts of the city that they hope to pick up. So, I mean, I think it will make a difference. I mean, in some of these, I think, you know, they're, you know, they're also going to try to, you know, announce certain people or keep their powder dry a little bit as we kind of get in closer to an election. But uh, I do think that's, yeah, I do think that's happening. And it will, you know, I think it can make a bit of a difference, especially at the margins, especially in a tight race, uh, depending on, yeah, what kind of, what kind of candidate they get and then what kind of campaign they build out from there. Yeah. To me, this election is going to be a little unusual in that, I mean, if you compare it to 2016, it wasn't really a fair fight. I yeah. mean, Greg Selinger 
you know, basically imploded the party. Uh, his decision to stay on was, I think we all knew was wrong at the time. I won't speak for you guys, but I think it, it was, it was a, it was a foolish decision more uh, personally or individually motivated than in the best interest of the party. But I remember, I have this very distinct memory of going to visit the NDP war room on Portage Avenue and because they'd rented a, a couple of floors of a office building there and going in and seeing these rooms and rooms and rooms of computers and telephones for, you know, for all of the automatic dialing, uh, push polling, whatever you want to call it, right? Voter identification. And there were like three people in there. Yeah. So they didn't have volunteers. In the end, when they started to see, you know, for example, that the, a couple of uh, long-held ridings that they didn't think were vulnerable were losing, they didn't have any resort. There was no money uh, or resources to, to move into those ridings to shore them up. So the Tories were well-funded. David McLaughlin ran a great campaign. You know, they just, you know, like they, they you know, and, and Brian Pallister as well, like cracked the whip. He had all of his people selling memberships and raising money and, you know, contributing money to the to the central campaign. So, yeah, like they were better organized and they executed better. This time around, it's kind of hard to know exactly. Like the Tories have actually done pretty darn okay on fundraising. Maybe yeah. not as well as they have in the past, but they're pretty strong. The NDP have made a big rebound in fundraising. So they're going to have money uh, before. But Kirkfield Park is, again, well, boy, do we, you're going to beat that <laughs> to, a, to, to a pulp. But, you know, the, part of the problem there was it, it is a new generation of yep. people working in the back rooms. So all of the doer people, all the people with the institutional knowledge of, of that secret sauce that they yeah. use that they're all gone. So I, I would say that, that one of the things that Brian Pallister did for the party's benefit of the PCs was that he forced local candidates to to rejuvenate their local thing. And if you weren't signing up members, you, you were getting... You got some, the bison of shame. That's right. And, and that <laughs> happened out in my home and part yes, of And yes, Brian, Transcona. there was a bison of shame. Sorry. <laughs> so, so Brian Pallister uh, 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 got the, the ridings reinvigorated in areas that needed to be reinvigorated. He also brought a diversity of, of candidates, and, and we forget that. as, uh, But... I, I would say that that on the local candidate nominations to to Nagan's question in and is that um, if candidates fee, if people feel that their party is going to has a chance of winning that you will get see some very good candidates running for the parties if they think it's a lost cause there'll be people who say they aren't going to be running and um, you know we had the slight uptick by the pro poll and we'll have to see if in the spring that uptick continues for the PCs but. It, but look, if if you are thinking of running, you have to give up your job for a number of months. Yeah. You know, it, it's a big, big deal to, you know, we saw Sherry Rollins. She was thinking of running uh, against Ben Carr for the federal liberal nomination coming up for the by-election. And, and she didn't because, you know, she has to sacrifice the sense of being being a city councillor. I would say that that. If the PCs are looking moribund in the next poll, that we, we, we will not see some good quality candidates running for the PCs. But if the PCs look like they have a shot, then there will be a, a quality candidate stepping forward. And I think that right now we will be seeing as these vacancies start being filled that you mentioned again, um, that we will see uh, easily some good quality candidates stepping forward because they feel that the NDP will be winning the next provincial election. Well, I mean, what really prompts me to think about this a lot is because, you know, if the Conservatives have, I mean, they're the most to pick at this point, or perhaps the most pivotal picks. I mean, if you've got 16 of your 57 ridings not selected for a candidate yet, uh, some of those are in those rural ridings. And if we know what the has and happened in the, dog will do, in the, right? <laughs> well, we know what's happened, perhaps. I mean, that tension within the Conservative Party is really notable, um, but it's also notable in that uh, if the biggest issue coming out of the pandemic was the fracture within the Conservative Party, and I don't want to take away the thunder of what we talked about with the Keystone Party, um, but that there is a hard right within that party, there's also a urban right or, or more progressive right, yeah. then who they put in those candidate spots will be pivotal, yeah. will be really pivotal because it will show both, it will signal to the urban voter that the, the party's turning hard right, which I think... Stephenson has tried to try to do with most conservative leaders, appease the hard right and then also appeal to the center right. 
And then if you appoint a bunch of candidates within the rural areas, which are so-called perhaps safe ridings, but yet that are, let's say, affiliated with movements like the Freedom Convoy and so on, then that's a tough move. That's a tough decision to be made as to who will be the candidate and how what will you, that signal to the rest of the party. Well, I think that's the inherent tension, right? And you have to look at it, I think, through a few different lenses, like in those safe, you know, safe rural conservative seats. Um, and I think this is part of the reason, you know, why I think it's been a little bit difficult for, for Heather Stephenson and others to kind of deal with that is that the people who are most likely to be getting involved in a nomination race or, you know, the people who are going to be making those decisions and showing up to a meeting to pick someone on, on mass are the people who are really, you know, like the people who maybe got, you know, involved in the freedom convoy or who supported their aims or, yeah, like, like, yeah, I mean, there is a really, I mean, it's a, it's a strong activist base. I mean, we've seen this in Canada. We've seen this in the U.S. where, where that, those are the folks that are kind of getting more involved. And interesting, in fact, I mean, most of the um, uh, nominated candidates so far, a lot of them are actually also former, uh, you know, staffers. Like they're all they're they're people yeah, who, who work who work in the building who uh, you know are yeah uh, stepping into some of these roles. Who'll probably be the next crop of uh, conservative MLAs. Exactly. And so, but in the city, I mean, in some of the ones where, you know, in the contested writings that they need to, you know, the conservatives need to hang on to, um, that's where I think it's a little more challenging because I don't know if they have quite the same infrastructure, uh, you know, and the, quite the same dynamics in terms of uh, who's going to end up being the candidate and who's going to end up being involved. And that's what they have to kind of work through. So it's a little bit different, I think, with that versus in some of these, you know, rural areas where it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's that's what you're dealing with. So interesting and this this is partly goes to what you just said but also chris what you talked about about the things that gary uh or uh, brian palliser did so uh he and also uh david mclaughlin i think was big yeah. in this established an actual dashboard and where they would report on like you know uh, uh membership sales um uh, you know other fundraising checks and whatever and you know, if you fell below the line, you were summarily roasted at caucus meetings and whatnot. One of the first things that Heather Stephenson did when she came in, she got rid of the dashboard. Um, and and one part of it was that the dashboard lost credibility within the PC caucus because uh, Brian Pallister wouldn't allow his writings numbers to be put up on it. <laughs> on the argument that, well, I'm off, you know, doing, you know, first minister things like, you know, so it's not fair to compare me. But of course, he wasn't doing that stuff either. So but she got rid of it. And it, it really it was um, it was a, an interesting signal to the caucus. Uh, it, the caucus definitely wanted it. But it does harken back now to like David McLaughlin, his co- uh, quote to me about the party that he saw when he arrived a year in advance of 2016 to help Brian with the campaign. He said that the the caucus room was less, we were less a team than we were a network of warring duchies. <laughs> so they were raising money, like the, the best of them were raising money, solid constituency organizations, not sending money to the central campaign, not helping uh, weaker candidates or writings. So, but this all really, like, this all brings us to the X factor, uh, small X or big X, Keystone Party, uh, or, and I'll lump into the conversation, or, um, you know, the, the, uh, activist, far right libertarian conservatives, uh, you know, uh, going after some nominations, uh, how that constituency, either through either channel, how big an influence uh, are they going to have on conservative results when it comes down? I, I I don't think they'll have a huge um, impact. It'll only be, I think, in, in a few different ways. In terms of, like, gaining support or potentially winning seats, I don't see that happening uh, because, you know, maybe they pick up a little bit more support in some really rock-solid And you're talking mostly now about Keystone, the Keystone Party. Party. Yeah. yeah, so the Keystone Party. So that part of it, I don't see it necessarily playing out there. The only way I really kind of see it is potentially playing out, and I guess we'll kind of see what happens. I mean, this is a little bit sort of peering into a really hazy crystal ball. But if you get some people who are nominated who maybe have said or done some you know, problematic or contentious things uh, at some point. And then the NDP makes a big deal out of it saying, you know, look, this is who's running for the conservatives. This is Heather Stephenson's conservative party. You have to drop candidates. I mean, we see this, I think we've seen this more often like in Alberta, right? Where yeah. different United UCP candidates have been dropped because something came to light. That's the only way I see that happening. But I just, I don't see any real evidence of, so far of that. 
So I, I, the Keystone Party, I see comparable to the Confederation of Regions. I don't know if people remember the Core Party back in the late '80s, and they were very successful in New Brunswick. But yeah, but that was, a, today, that was that was sorry. You got lots of deep cuts today, Chris. <laughs> 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 well, I'm wearing my That's Stephen right. Fletcher button for you. Like I, I brought it as a souvenir of past I, days. How here. did we miss that somehow? Like it's, <laughs> Isn't that that's the metaphor for Stephen Fletcher's entire career? How did he get in here? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I mean, like, uh, far right independent parties uh, sometimes can have a can have an influence. But I, I would say that that like the core party, it, it will pick up some votes, you know, in in some safe conservative ridings here, like the the People Party, People's Party in in the last federal election. But I don't see the Keystone Party as being having any impact on mm. on. On, a, on any uh, any of the constituencies uh, on the outcomes, but I mean, the, there are enough that I mean, there they are enough that Max M. Bernier is considering running in Manitoba in the next federal election. I mean, that's that. that there's yeah, enough of a, a presence. We had there. a vote after he left the province. We decided to pass. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so respectfully, he's looking sir, at Portage Liscard. Yeah, yeah you know? well, in, in yeah. mentioning the core party in 1988, the core party came second place in all southern federal ridings in, in Manitoba. And they came second place behind the Conservative Party, the Progressive Conservatives federally. So yeah. I, I think the People's Party, the same thing. Is, is they, a lot of noise, but there won't be any uh, outcome. So here, here's my, um, uh, I can't get over it. Every time I go to a Jets game, uh, you know, it's like uh, True North is big, you know, True North. And then, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, free, there's this smaller but still loud constituency that yells out free during that part of the national anthem. And it's a, you know, it's an anti-pandemic restriction kind of thing. It, and this is what it's impossible to tell how many people are doing that. And of those people doing it, are they really serious or are they just, I'm going to use up my profanity now disturbers see i i have to say something every episode so that uh, adam gets to hit the bleep button I'll, I'll make sure that the button is ready yeah okay so <laughs> disturber so but like it's impossible to tell which is very much like the keystone party here's when that happens though here's the scenario that i see i see the results in fort richmond i see the the uh uh the ndp candidate winning fort richmond by 75 votes and some wingnut from the mm -hmm. Keystone Party getting 135 votes. Like, there are going to be some really, really tight races in the city, particularly in a lot of these, like, less, like 100 votes, less than 200 votes for sure. All, all they have to do to, to kind of upset the apple cart is get 150 votes. And I think in most of these ridings, particularly in South Winnipeg, if a Keystone Party, if they register a, a candidate, I think they're going to get 150 votes. Okay. So, uh, you know, that'll be like, because we're going to do this again after the election, and we're all going to sit in a circle, like, you know, kind of facing each other and do that, that pat, pat, patting on the back because we're so smart. <laughs> no, but it'll be interesting to see. Like, I honestly, because I'm still not sure if that happened in the federal election. The, the you know, um, there was the federal conservatives certainly thought they got pooched. Uh, in a, in a, what about a dozen ridings where the where the PPC support was just enough to sort of keep them in second place without really any knowledge of those people would those people have even shown up to vote for the conservatives right but I do th I do think like if uh, if 150 people vote and 75 of those were people who have voted PC in the past in about six or eight ridings in the city that could be a big big deal. Question. I think I think it's to me notable. I mean, only because I I think that there's enough of a constituency that still has a kind of activist bent, and that they're curious to what is that? What what is the remainder of that? And and you know, while the Freedom Convoy Part Two didn't turn into what it was or expected to be, um, I think that there's enough of a of a constituency that wants to make an impact. And so, I guess time will tell, and we'll see. Yeah. Um, do can we get to? We did make some numbers. Yeah, we did some. Uh, we did some, and I have numbers too. That's so my homework is, oh, you, is oh, okay. done. So I'll reveal the 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 totals because in addition to asking our uh, our panel to identify safe seats and swing seats, then I we asked them to do an overall uh, prediction. 
Uh, and Curtis didn't do an overall prediction first, and then I asked him, and then he reluctantly agreed because <laughs> he realized, like, this is a mugs game, right? Like, it's, Very much. You know, we shouldn't, like, so please be kind. You know, <laughs> listeners. Okay, but what, it is interesting, the results as they came through. So Curtis's uh, uh, prediction was NDP 29, PC 25, Liberals 3. And Chris Adams said NDP 30, PC 24, Liberal Party 3. Off by one. Dan uh, said NDP 29, PC 25, Liberals 3. And uh, Nigan says... NDP 28, Conservatives 26, Liberals 3. Okay, so there is actually kind of a remarkable commonality. Like we have some common thinking... You know, it, it is, a majority is certainly, it's not improbable by any means. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not impossible. Nothing is. But it's not improbable at this point, is it? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's a, a, like, the thing is for the NDP, I think the ceiling, like, they can definitely win a majority. That's definitely there just based on the number of seats in Winnipeg and where things fall. But their ceiling is pretty low. And I think even, like I said before, you know, before, some of those even, you know, safe, you know, NDP seats that we're thinking are safer, I don't think are slam dunks. And yeah, these toss ups, they kind of have to run the table. And I think there are a lot of factors that have to come into play for them to be able to pick up all those seats. Like, you know, they need to have good local, you know, good local campaigns. Things need to be kind of breaking in their direction, all those sorts of things. So, I mean, you know, I don't think that saying the NDP are going to be in power and, you know, as of October, I don't think we can say that's a slam dunk. Um, and even if, and even if they do win, it, I think it's going to be pretty narrow because I think that, yeah, the conservatives, you know, should still be able to win quite a bit of seats and definitely make this a competitive election. I, I would say that, you know, we have to remember, and I think people easily forget, like the, the era of the COVID, uh, people, vociferously angry at our governing PCs. And the question will be, to what extent is that anger dissipating in, in the electorate? And the people angry about senior citizens, angry about about the hospitals, angry just about a whole range of things. And I um, I just wonder, to what extent will people have forgotten that that, that anger? And uh, I, I'm thinking that, that many won't. And um, uh, on the extreme right of those who are like like uh, on the convoy side of things uh, the question is does the, does the keystone party have the machinery to, to identify and get those people out to vote uh, but I, I really do think I have 30 NDP in my prediction I, I think that's a fairly straightforward prediction I, I and uh, to think that the PCs have been in power for two terms well shortened terms was the second one yeah. um, they, they went a year early into the election but I um, I think there are many ridings here that 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 have historically voted the NDP they just moved over to the PCs for a couple of terms yeah I, again I think the I think the big well I think voter turnout is going to be a big issue for both the NDP and the Tories when I talk to new Democrats right now, they are sick with worry. Uh, it's your fault, Curtis. It's probe research. You come out with these 30 <laughs> point bulge in Winnipeg. Shoot the message. All, yeah. All yeah. of a sudden, you know, shame, they, shame. You know, yeah. the, the NDP war room, they all start getting images of all of their hardcore supporters, like planning wedding showers on the election night or something, you know, <laughs> not voting. So, uh, you know, I think, I think huge leads are difficult for, uh, in polls are difficult for parties to manage. Uh, expectations are high, but not every that doesn't always translate into the kind of activity and uh, on e day. Um, I think as well too. Like um, my, I, I do believe that 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 my twenty nine is uh, is the younger. Like I, I think I think I'm actually uh, I'm trying not to peg myself to a number that's indefensible, but I, I actually see a, a scenario where, especially in Winnipeg combination of that you know weird wingnut character taking 150 votes and i just i see people not voting not voting for heather stevenson not voting for this government not having anybody else to vote for not voting and you know when that happens if the ndp are good at managing their problem of expectations that's when you start to see you know, uh, uh, things get bigger because remember like i don't think anybody thought brian pallister necessarily was going to win 36 seats yeah in 2016 like he, he it i think they thought he was going to win the election but he even and you know some of the seats that they won from the ndp were like i mean it was it was pretty odd 
even with the, you know, the way Selinger ran the party into the ground. So I think that, but that that is NDP traditional voters not showing up. Uh, yeah, the not the not showing up part is going to be the the pivotal point, and so I I do agree that there's people watching the polls and wondering if apathy will be created. But you know, the issue of healthcare is such a personal issue, and you know, arguably personal for me too. But uh, it's a, such a personal issue that I wonder too if uh, really all that's going to cure that is just a, a few well placed ads and a reminder that. Uh, both during the pandemic and after the pandemic, that this situation of healthcare is, is in such a dire position that it may be such that people feel such personally invested in, in wanting change. I, I think they may, they, that, that apathy may be overcome, even if there is a big lead, because the issue is yeah. so personal for so many. Well, it, it is interesting. In uh, last week's newspaper, uh, there was all that news about the grace. Um, the government tried to... Um, diminish the controversy over this the orthopedic surgeons at the grace by dropping an update from the uh, from the surgical diagnostic procedures task force that they had made progress in reducing the wait list and this is this has got to be one of the most qualified good news announcements ever so there are now fewer people who are waiting ungodly lengths of time to get uh, elective uh, joint and cataract surgery. And the problem with that is that the, the wait list is still, like there's still 100,000 people in Manitoba waiting. Well, I think the cataract you know? surgery has been been mostly remedied. But I, but, he, but they're only talking, Chris, they're only talking about reducing the number of people who were added to the wait list during the pandemic. Yeah. Not the number of people who were already waiting. Yeah. And it, yeah. So, so I, I would say though, and I think we all agree that two big issues are always education and, and education and health. And, and those two issues, and sometimes crime, but those two issues are really important to the middle class and the middle class in Winnipeg or, you know, in the suburbs. And, and I think the healthcare crisis will be swinging many voters over to the NDP. Well, we want to do a, yeah. you know, a big thanks to you both for coming by. Uh, we, you know, we just a very invigorating and exciting discussion uh, on something that you wouldn't think would be that exciting and invigorating. Uh, this is all I live for, Nikon. I really don't <laughs> understand what you're talking about. When you told me this, you're talking, talking to about, a political studies <laughs> guy, a pollster, and a political columnist, and it's yeah, I didn't think it would be that interesting. Are you <laughs> I, on the I, wrong podcast? I, no, man? I, no, I thought it would be interesting, but I just didn't think it for maybe the listener. But I think that what we did was is we gave the listener a big foray into Manitoba politics, also inside or outside of Manitoba. We have a lot of listeners outside of Manitoba. And I think what we gave them is a real sort of geographical landscape a few months out. Uh, but I think this election is such one to watch because uh, it's not only our first one post-pandemic, but it's a uh, pretty pivotal one, I think, that indicates uh, some shifts in both parties that they're going to be facing. Well, I very much enjoyed being with, with Curtis and the two of you, uh, particularly being in the CJNU uh, studios, which I really think are really nice to be they're, in. They're pretty spiffy. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. yeah, we're almost afraid sometimes to tell people how nice it is here in case, <laughs> like, people want to come and have lunch or, you know, just sort of, you know, look from the other side of the fishbowl. Um, yeah, thanks to uh, Chris Adams from the University of Manitoba Political Studies, Chris Brown from Probe Research, uh, Nagan Sinclair from Parts Unknown. Uh, pa- <laughs> In the city this week. In the city this week. <laughs> Woo! A special treat. And I'm Dan Lett. And uh, thank Emmy you. Emmy Glitch for coming out. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you.